Well, Alex, welcome back. We are looking at chapter five of the New Biblical Eldership book on what I think is the most controversial chapter, although it shouldn't be, on male leadership. Uh, You make a statement, nothing is more objectionable to the minds of many contemporary people than the biblical requirement of an all-male eldership. A biblical eldership, however, is an all-male eldership. Uh, Alex, is this controversial? Should it be controversial? No, it shouldn't be controversial, but it is controversial because of what modern Western secular society has concluded and the pressure on God's people and our young people to uh, feminism and egalitarianism is just horrendous. Uh, But really, through most of the history of God's people for thousands of years, they have known there's an equality aspect to the husband-wife relationship, male-female relationship, and there is a uh, distinction, um, role distinction uh, between the two. So it's really after the 60s that this really takes off. I remember at seminary, we had Dr. Paul Jewett come. He had just written his new book, Men and Women in Christ. I read the book, and he also lectured at our seminary for a week. And I knew in that time, and I think that was in 1973, this is going to be a huge issue. And so from that point on, I tried to read all the major books, uh, works that came out on this subject. And I've written a nice, simple, short book uh, for actually for high schoolers and for college students, taking them through all the biblical passages, both the ones that show equality and both the ones that show diversity. I mean, a big question people are going to ask, maybe not, you know, if they've never heard of biblical eldership, this is a new concept to them. The, the question, I'll just lob you a softball here, but why say women can't be elders? Well, we don't have a choice. We have the binding authority of Scripture. And really, you have to take this issue back to the word of the Lord. Who are we to say a man can do this, a woman can't do this? Who are we to say that? That would be discrimination. It would be cruel. But God says this right at the very beginning of the Bible. And when you come to the New Testament, Paul and Peter are very clear. Even our Lord is clear about this. There is a distinction and there are role differences between men and women designed by God for our good. Right. This is baked into the created order. Absolutely. One One of the greats on this topic is John Piper. And of course, he wrote that landmark uh, book with Wayne Grudem, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He's got a, a quote you you uh, put in your book. He says, over the years, I've come to see from scripture and from life that manhood and womanhood are the beautiful handiwork of a good and loving God. He designed our differences and they are profound. They are not mere physiological prerequisites for sexual union. They go to the root of our personhood. What a contemporary quote today. Yes. There is something different about being a man. There is something different about being a woman. And there is something beautiful about pairing them together to continue the human race. Right. Yeah, this is challenged in all kinds of colorful ways today. And it's 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 interesting to me. It's actually fascinating how relevant uh, this is, this whole subject of, of gender. But this goes back to, I mean, you start with Jesus and the apostles. This comes up right out of the gates in the New Testament with Jesus 
being male, for instance, yes. picking 12 male apostles. Co- comment on the significance of this. Well, Jesus is the counterpart to Adam, and he's also the bridegroom, the husband to his people. Jesus had to be male. I mean, the whole Old Testament shows that. And then uh, Jesus chooses 12 male apostles. Shouldn't he have had at least six women, uh, six men, or at least one woman, if he's the great liberator of women that he's claimed to be? But remember, when Jesus chose the 12 male apostles, he spent the entire night in prayer. So really, uh, it was God the Father's choice of these men. Right. You make a great statement here. If Jesus is the supreme egalitarian that some wish him to be, he utterly failed women at a critical moment in history. Uh, one, one, I know, super popular contemporary challenge to you know, this chapter and what you've written here is is Junia in Romans 16. This is kind of the most uh, hot off the press argument challenging this, saying, you know, she is an apostle. Can you just comment a little bit on on this? Yes. Um, I heard this sermon on uh, the Hillsong Channel um, by this lady, and the entire sermon was on Junia. What an important apostle she was and talented and people um, thought she was the best and what a great apostle she was. None of this is in that text. It's all imagination. Junia most likely is the wife of Andronicus, uh, one of several uh, husband and wife teams back in verse 3, Prisca and Aquila. They're a husband and wife team. They're not called apostles. And then in verse 15, you have Philoiscus and Julia, uh, another husband and wife team. And you really could say Peter and his wife were a husband and wife team traveling, 1 Corinthians 9, 5. And uh, this couple were fellow Jews, and they were believers. In fact, they were believers for the apostle Paul. And it may be they were in prison with Paul. If not with Paul, they for the gospel wound up in prison. So uh, they were very real encouragements to Paul. Now the question is, what does the rest of the verse say? If you read your ESV or the Net Bible or the Christian Standard Bible, uh, they translate this, they were well known to the apostles. Uh, Daniel Wallace, probably one of our finest Greek scholars, he translates it, outstanding in the eyes of the apostles. But let's just say, well, many Bibles and other scholars say, no, they were distinguished among the apostles. In other words, they were both apostles. Well, I wouldn't even fight that. Uh, the, the question then becomes, what's the nature of their apostleship? They're certainly not among the 12 apostles, right. or Paul, or Barnabas, or James. I would say this is, should be translated something like, uh, well, Ellis gives it as commissioned missionaries, and Doug Moo, traveling missionaries. So I would say it doesn't prove they were even apostles in the technical sense. Too much is read into this. Right, right. Uh, you know, you mentioned Paul and the qualifications for elders and overseers, and you make a good point with uh, the passage preceding 1 Timothy 3, uh, that section on uh, qualifications, where, where Paul says, I desire, this is back in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, I desire likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Uh, why, 
why is that significant? Um, I mean, it, it comes right before these qualifications in First Timothy 3, but I guess, what does that tell us? Well, I want to just make one comment that I feel we uh, passed on, and that is really your egalitarians or feminists, they insult Jesus Christ. They say he gave in to the male patriarchal culture, which was very sinful. And he was a coward. Uh, he was a coward. Yeah. Yet you see, he stood up to the Pharisees and said they finally killed him. He was not a coward. They're insulting our Lord and making him fearful and uh, accommodating himself to the culture. Acquiescing. Yeah. Yes. So let's come back to our passage here that you brought up. Um, what you need to see when you come to the First Timothy passage is First Timothy three fifteen gives you the larger context. Paul is telling Timothy how people mm -hmm. should conduct themselves in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That context starts in chapter 2. You do not read chapter 3 until you've read chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he makes, a, he makes a clear apostolic statement. He says, I do not permit. The reason he said that is because it was probably difficult for those people to deal with too. So he lays down apostolic authority. And there's two things here of interest to us. A woman, and this is in the context, remember, of chapter 3, verse 15, the local church gathered community of people. The woman is not to teach... The second thing, she's not to exercise authority over the men of the church. In other words, male leadership of the church. And that really weighs down heavily upon the teaching ministry, which is an exercise mm -hmm. of authority. Mm -hmm. Then he moves right into chapter 3, seamlessly right. saying he must be the husband of one wife. He must uh, manage his own family well, all assuming a male Subject, And then you go over to chapter 5, and you see elders who labor and preaching and teaching, mm -hmm. some who lead well. So you put the whole context together. Uh, Paul is prohibiting women from being elders in the church. It's been said, you don't even have to comment on this verse to be offensive. You just have to read it. But when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she's to remain quiet. Remember, I think it was Mark Dever who said at a conference once that the reason this verse is important uh, is because if you can make the Bible say the exact opposite of what it says, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. So this goes back to your, your original point that really this chapter is largely about the authority of Scripture. Absolutely. Are we going to come underneath the Scripture or are we going to stand over the Scripture really is the question. You know, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, warn them about people who twisted the scriptures or perverted the scriptures. And that's in um, Acts chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Well, this is scripture twisting. I would rather a person say, I don't agree right. with what Paul said. That would be more intellectually honest right. than to go to the New Testament and twist and turn and pervert what the plain, straightforward right. teaching gives. One of the things I'm really grateful for today is we just have a, a panoply of excellent scholars. And uh, you cite, uh, you know, Andreas Kostenberger, Tom Schreiner is a good example of this. But in their book, Women in the Church, they, they take a, a serious look at this passage. It just would commend this book to elders who are, you know, facing this issue or just want to think 
on a more technical level, this is a really, really good book. And this book answers the questions of 1 Timothy 2.12. And uh, there's such a twisting of that passage that it's pathetic, actually, where Schreiner and Kostenberg answer every one of these questions. So I would say this, an eldership should have these books on hand. I think every elder should own that book. And they need to have good literature in the church for right. our young people. Right, right. Lots of resources. Right. And there are resources, good resources. Now, this doesn't mean, this chapter isn't saying that women can't be gifted in ministry. I mean, again, we, we alluded to Romans 16. But talk to me just about the fact that women, there are gifted women in the church. Paul clearly emphasizes this, talks about this. How does this correspond to this teaching of an all-male eldership? Yes, we see in the Bible, women are gifted. They have spiritual gifts. Women are great evangelists. Women can teach, but they must not teach the church, uh, the gathered body. Uh, women have any other gifts. And uh, I would say they use their gifts in a way that does not violate right. male leadership in the home and church. Right. So even in your home, the man is to be the head of the home, a verse we'll look at in a moment. Um, and uh, we know in our homes, our wives are wise. Uh, uh, they can uh, be great Bible students and doctrinal students. In many ways, the women read a lot more than the men and uh, often very faithful. But they do this. They serve the Lord. And we see this in the New Testament. There are women who worked closely with Paul. There are women who followed Jesus and ministered to him. But they do it in a way that doesn't violate the uh, original principle of male headship. I uh, mentioned Kossenberger and Schreiner. Another, another blessing to the church today is Kevin DeYoung, who's written so much on this topic and just praise the Lord for him. But he, he, you've got a quote from him uh, at the bottom of page 73. He says, only as a complementarian pair could Adam and Eve fill the earth and subdue it. The differences between men and women were God's idea from the beginning to ignore, minimize, repudiate the differences between men and women is to reject our creational design and the God who designed it. That's a great quote. It's a wonderful quote, and he gets right to the heart of the issue. This is part of the original design. And remember, man in his sin always distorts what God does. And Satan's a great counterfeiter, and he counterfeits sex, he counterfeits gender, he counterfeits marriage, and um, we almost should expect this. And uh, one of the curses upon uh, the human race after the sin was uh, there would be this war between the sexes. Another advantage um, to this view is, is the, what you call the harmony with other uh, scriptural texts. This, this, this really is a fair treatment. It, it harmonizes with other passages. Uh, and Ephesians is a great example. Now, I, I have gone through your book literally probably a dozen times uh, teaching, uh, teaching your book. Uh, to different groups, and uh, one of the things that has recently struck me is how important the Ephesians five passage is to eldership. Can you just comment on on that and ex explain that? Yes, because of the analogy Paul uses, it is so important. Paul says here uh, that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, notice the analogy. It's not Ephesian culture. It's 
Christ and his church. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. There's no question Christ is the head of the church. That's not a cultural issue. And then it says the wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. That's not cultural. That's transcultural. It's theological. This is a very powerful passage that in the home, the man has leadership. And I, I can't stop here, David. It's very important to go on because people take this passage and they do abusive things to women. The passage goes on to say the kind of headship that the Bible talks about is Christ-like headship. Not a hyper headship. Uh, yeah. No. It's not sinful, abusive headship. It is headship that he loves the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself. If you don't go on to that part of the passage, you will make a very ugly and distorted uh, picture of the Christian home. The Christian home is to be characterized by the loving, Christ-like, self-sacrificing leadership of the husband. Right. So the home supports the church. The church supports the home. There's a corresponding nature to this. Uh, you've got a quote from Stephen Clark, and I again, I, this punctuates your point, but he says, if the men are supposed to be the heads of the family, they must also be the heads of the church community. The church community must be structured in a way that supports the pattern of the family, and the family must be structured in a way that supports the pattern of the church community. I think that it, that is so well said and, and really important. Yes, there's this mutual support of the theological truths of creation, of maleness and femaleness, and of marriage. You know, our Bibles give us a very clear picture of what marriage is. And it has great theological implications. It's, it's an mm -hmm. analogy to Christ and his church. Mm -hmm. So we're not left with uh, some vague, uh, arbitrary type of teaching. We have specific teaching of what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. All of it is to reflect Christ and his church. This comes back to really an original question, but who who really is accommodating the culture, right? Yes. How, would, how would you answer that? I mean, well, they accuse Jesus of accommodation. They accuse us of accommodating ourselves to uh, ancient abusive culture. Uh, I would say it's really the modern egalitarian and feminists who have accommodated themselves to modern Western society. And, uh, you know, David, I lived through uh, this transition. So when I first became a Christian, I was not from a Christian home, and uh, the teaching of male, female, marriage, uh, gender, all of this was pretty well right across the board in the seminaries, in churches. Uh, there was no big controversy over this. And then the 60s came when the, uh, the, the sexual revolution came in the 60s, which I lived all through that. And um, starting to see in the early 70s, although in some denominations as far back as the, the uh, 50s, but those were very liberal con uh, congregations. Really, it was the late 60s, early 70s, going into the 80s that uh, evangelical, Bible-believing churches started to, started to make the shift and follow the world's view of men and women and trying to literally erase um, maleness, male headship, and definitely female submission. So I watched the transition, and it took time, but basically what we see with some of our, many of our seminaries today, it's really uh, tragic, and our writers and our scholars uh, basically have followed Western societies of view. Um, they're more 
secular in this area than they are Bible believing. And the tragedy really is the authority of Scripture, the twisting of Scripture. Twisting of Scripture. That's the worst part. Who wants a Bible that says one thing but means another? Right. And you got to be a, a Greek <laughs> scholar to twist the words right. around. You know, one of the arguments you mentioned the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, it seems like back then the main argument had to do with Galatians 3.28, uh, neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. It seems like that argument has maybe fallen out of favor a little bit, but talk to me about the significance of that of that argument. How would you answer that? Well, what was happening in the 70s and 80s, not so much today, but they were pitting Galatians 3.28, there's neither male nor female, which is now used for the homosexual community. There's neither male nor female. They would pit that verses. Uh, that verse, and they would pit the verses that the women were the first to proclaim the resurrected Christ, which is a beautiful thing, against the verses on Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. They pit them against one another. We do not pit them against one another. We hold them both in balance. There is an equality. We say this over and over. There is an equality in personhood and dignity and worth between a man and a woman. They both share in the grace of life, Peter says, and there is uh, the distinctions that God has created, role distinctions, uh, which our bodies reflect, our psychology reflects, and our spiritual condition, our spiritual uh, status um, reflects today. As we bring this chapter to a close, uh, what what other comments, thoughts do you have on just the significance of male leadership, uh, the importance of it? Uh, how would you close out this section? Well, here's how I would close this out. I want to make very clear. Women have gifts. Women, and I have a list here of all the things you see in the New Testament of women were doing. They were very active. They were indispensable to the early church. At the same time, maintaining the God-ordained roles of men and women for his glory and for their own good. I would say this, no one should become an elder who has not made a clear confession of their view of the biblical roles of men and women, and they will stand strong with that. If um, a candidate for eldership is not strong in this area, doesn't know the verses of Scripture, doesn't know the arguments, we can solve that quickly. There are good books. They're simple books. They need to be taught. But do not bring on an elder who questions these things, not sure of these things, sort of in a fog about these things, because he will give in eventually because the pressure is horrendous. So all the elders should be confirmed on this, strong on this. People come to your church. You have a new people's class. This should be uh, very clearly uh, articulated that we are a church that's complementarian. We want women to use their gifts to the max. We want them to be happy. We want them to feel protected and guarded here in our churches. But at the same time, understand God has ordained a role for them and a role for women that must be maintained for our own human goodness. Just a, and I thought came to me. Wayne Grudem has that book. Uh, I believe it's called Evangelical Feminism: The Pathway to Liberalism, where he does case study after case study of, of seminaries, publishing houses, camps, uh, organizations that, when they adopt an egalitarian reading of Scripture, it really is a, a pathway to liberalism. 
there's no quicker way, pathway, you could say, to apostasy than, than through egalitarian readings of the Scripture because it undermines the authority of Scripture. It undermines the Scripture, and you twist the Scriptures. And you're dealing with a fundamental issue to God, and that is being a man, being a woman as God designed, and how that's lived out in the local congregation for our young people to see. It's for our good. It's for our blessing right. to follow God's plan. Right. So we've turned the whole thing upside down. Then we wonder why we have so many problems. Right. Well, very important chapter, Alex. Thank you for this. Uh, we'll look at uh, next chapter, chapter six, the first Jewish Christian elders. But this was a this was a good summary of chapter five. Thanks, brother. Biblical Eldership Resources is committed to equipping church elders to help them be effective, godly leaders of the church. Please consider donating to the ministry so that we can continue to provide essential eldership resources for church elders around the world. To donate, go to biblicaleldership.com.